Welcome to Performing Black. Performing Black is a celebration of the work that pushes the culture forward and a conversation of the work that leaves us wanting more. Oh, damn. This podcast will make you laugh, but most importantly, it's going to make you think. Performing Black is a celebration of black people and black art. Love, of course. What is good? Listen, these are some troubling times. We just gotta push through, right? Push through. We stay prayed up. <laughs> Keep it pushing. I guess so. I guess so. Let us jump right in. Today we are talking about coming to America. Hey, hey. And it appears that... We are on opposite sides of the fence yet again. <laughs> I feel like you know we we might meet in the middle. We might meet in the middle. I think I think there's some things we can agree upon about this film. Okay. Um, I don't know. It's just so much going on. Let's just let's just let's just start the conversation. <laughs> Let us just let's get into this conversation. What is going on with black folk in America? In black America? Well, the first thing, we've had the stimulus checks come on out. Unfortunately, for those of us who uh, have been claimed as dependents, we ain't really seeing that money. A lot of my peers who are college aged or who were claimed as dependents on the 2019 20- uh, tax forms are not seeing these stimulus checks that their parents are getting in their name, uh, myself included. So, so we're a little upset about that. Oh, that's terrible. Well, if it makes you feel any better, um, the account that the IRS has on file for me is is defunct, and Ooh. so that money was deposited into that. <laughs> that invisible account on March 17th. So I am now trying to track down my coin. <laughs> oh my gosh, what does that look like? Well, you know, I guess it's going to be like the other $600 check. I ended up getting it in the mail, I guess, uh-huh. a couple months after everybody else got theirs, but I wasn't expecting it. So it was a nice surprise, but uh-huh. I need my money now, so I'm going to be calling IRS tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> As soon as the office is open, as soon as they open, okay? they need to be they need to be working overtime today. But that might be yeah. a lot to ask for. You know, yeah. I, I heard some other folk are upset about not receiving their stimulus check. A man in Indianapolis apparently murdered four of his family members, uh, including three adults and one child, because his baby's mother was not giving him any of her stimulus check money. And uh, he went on a murderous rampage. He was a 25-year-old man. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's so much mental illness, undiagnosed, running around, running amok 
in this world, in this country. But that is insane. So because his baby's mother would not give him any of his, the stimulus check money, he decides to kill his own family members. Yep. 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 And then ran off with their, th- their six-month-old baby to another location until the police found them. The ba- that baby was fine and unharmed. But yeah, nigga was mad. Was it was the individual of African descent? Oh yes, this was a black man. Oh really? Yeah. I mean, you know, because normally when you hear these kinds of stories, you know, it's the caucasity of it all that that you know we that is recognizable to us. But in this case, this was a a young black man. Domestic violence happens everywhere. Well, of course, but these kind over a stimulus check. Yeah. I mean, these are hard times for folk. I mean, you know, and I don't want to diminish that, you know. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oof, that poor baby that has to grow up without that family. Yeah, I imagine that baby is now in the system, huh? Most likely, unless there are other uh, other relatives nearby. That's unfortunate. Well, on to other uh, rampages and um, shootings. There was unfortunate a, events. Unfortunate event in Atlanta, or right outside of Atlanta, where a young man decides to go on a shooting rampage to different massage parlors. Yep. Um, because he had a sex addiction and he felt like this was a way for him to um, try to heal from his addiction. Right. And he ends up shooting six Asian women. Is this correct? That's correct. And was it two and other women? Two Was it two white women as well? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So I think I the total it, number was eight. Oh, the total number was eight, and six of them were Asian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, and so now um, Black America has gone on its own rampage of posting uh, "Stop Asian Hate" yeah. all over the place. Any thoughts about that? So, <laughs> it's so interesting to me the ways in which this moment has replicated what we experienced last summer as black folk and seeing everybody do this performative apology and performative uh, educating of these issues of a, of a certain group of people in this country and what their lives may look like. And, you know, seeing yellow squares posted on social media, much, much like we saw black squares posted last June after George Floyd's murder, it's just... It's really fascinating thinking just about human behavior, I guess, at large and how everyone just kind of follows suit when these things happen. But it's actually very sad because it really is all just a performance and nobody is seeming to actually do anything or truly care. And so for me to care would just mean reaching out to a friend and being like, or someone that I actually talk to and have relationship with uh, and saying, you know, sending you love and light today, I know this news is probably hard to take in. Um, but, you know, when you when you <laughs> get into the mode of reaching back into your mind of 
all the people you know of a certain category or race and trying to figure out how you need to message each and every one of those people with a standardized message of, oh my God, I'm thinking about you and I'm here for you. Like, nah, just keep it real and simple. And, you know, educate yourself in your own time. Um, But yeah, the performative stuff just, (laughs) that'll do nothing for anybody. I'm certainly glad that I don't have, you know, those kinds of relationships or, or, or relations in my life. You know, mm. I, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a whole bunch of people reaching out to me, you know, checking in to see how I'm doing when George Floyd um, was murdered. Um, and I'm glad because yeah. I just think that that's just so disingenuous. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. just because that happened in that moment, you know, you know, that, my skin color is on attack every day, regardless mm-hmm. of who gets publicly assassinated. So I don't know, you know, I, yes, you're right, you know, to point out the way the performative nature of all of this. You know, my thing is, is that, you know, first of all, I guess, you know, Asians have been on attack really throughout this whole pandemic, you know, yeah. so I am unsure why now. <laughs> You know, I, I guess because of the public nature of what took place in Georgia. But why now are we picking now this moment to have this concern, you yeah. know? And, you know, I am not a tit for tat person, but this might be tit for tat. But I, I, I just am, I am confused because... There's so much anti-blackness in the Asian community um, that is mm-hmm. that is historic in this country. Yeah. And so I am just not going to run around posting things and 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 and, and, and aligning with a plight. Do I feel bad for what happened? Absolutely. You know, do we need to really think about domestic terrorism? Absolutely. Yes. You know, I was saying if I would post anything, is is one of those memes where they slash out stop Asian hate and then they, they put like stop uh, white terrorism or something like right. that. Yes. You know, that, <laughs> that, is that the would issue. be something. <laughs> that, and it really is the issue. It truly mm. is, you know, um, and it makes more sense, you know, to be to be putting up as opposed to this, you know, this fake alliance with Asian folk. Because I'm just like, Asian folk were not there for us, you know, during the George Floyd moment. Not not in large numbers. Perhaps they were individually with their friends, but not not, you know, as a community they weren't. You know, mm. they weren't there for Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, any of these things, you know? So I'm just, it's just, it's ridiculous to me. And I wish black folk would do better and I wish they would know better. And it's interesting to me the ways that immediately after that news broke, it was almost every media headline. So many of the stories circulating were about, you know, black people needing to take this time to care for the Asian community and refocus their energy toward um, toward this situation. And of course, yes, that is a possibility and we can do those and still care about the hate that we are receiving too and the violence that our bodies have experienced in this country as well. Um, but it's, it's, it's this weird thing. And I think the way our minds work this all out, it really is a sliding scale of 
whiteness being at the pinnacle and we really go through the shades of our skin tones with blackness being at the at the at the back end of course and it's like that is the totem pole so then for us to to express care like we have to be the black community is left to bear the brunt of all of the of that labor to care for every other minority group because we are you know the most direct opposition to whiteness so and, you know the, the the media ought not be directing anybody to do anything certainly not black people um, it is the media's fault, you know. It is the media who exacerbates these moments. It is the media who instigates these moments. Um, but you know, to your point earlier, it, it, you know, black people take the bait, and it's just—it's unbelievable to me. It is unbelievable to me, and sad, and it's just a reminder of how stupid many people are <laughs> you know um and i you know I, and i know that that is that is very you know strong and charged language that people don't like to hear but there's a lot of stupidity running around you know i i get to the point now where i don't even like to watch the news we watch a lot of news yeah. over here i don't even like to watch the news because i see its manipulative aspect i see the manipulation you know i see the the, the 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 ways in which they use language to say one thing but there's always this underlining meaning and i'm yes. like there are people watching this that don't um, don't know what you're doing i can see what you're doing i understand and i know you know i have colleagues and friends you know who understand but the large you know at large no they're hearing the baseline level or the the surface level of what you're saying and running with it but anybody with you know any critical thinking skills understands that you 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 are really not intending to do anything you're not intending yeah. you know to create any space but anybody else you're not intending to create space for anybody outside of whiteness and i think what you're touching on is so important just for our podcast too because what we're really doing is critiquing the ways media does program the large masses and right. that's even through movies and tv shows um right. and so <laughs> we have to really pay attention to these things and the messages subliminally and obviously that are being pushed out by media so i think it's important that you brought that up yeah i guess you won't be putting up a yellow box is that what you're saying i will not i will not <laughs> We are not just colors on a screen, y'all. I promise. Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, but I didn't see the Grammys, so uh, I did see uh, Cardi's performance, mm-hmm. um, and I saw the, the the many jokes that people had. But what did you want to say about the Grammys? No, for the Grammys, I just wanted to congratulate uh, Beyonce and Meg Thee Stallion, of course, for their awards for rap duo. Beyonce for making history, you know, of getting so many Grammy wins. Um, 28, I right? am, Yep, 28. I am upset about Chloe and Halle not getting any of the three awards they were nominated for. I think that's wrong. But I'm not mad that they lost that traditional R&B award to Let Us See because Let Us See is R&B, y'all. So... <laughs> yeah, but what what music did Lettucey have out last year? Anything for you was the song she got best R and B traditional performance for. So I'm gonna ask again: What music did uh, uh... Lettucey have? <laughs> <laughs> 
and I like lettuce. Don't I get me wrong. Lettuce. I I like lettuce a lot, you know. Um, <laughs> but did not know that Sister Girl had a song out last year. Yes. Anything for you was the song. <laughs> My Anything mom plays it on repeat, actually. Really? Mm-hmm. Anything for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Miss Taylor Swift won album of the year. I really have oh. no comments on that. I have not listened to that album, so I don't know what it sounded like, but I'm not surprised she won. Yeah, she stayed with a Grammy win, doesn't she? Yep. Well, um, Beyonce looked wonderful in her leather frock. She did. Her, um, with her gloves, with the metallic tips. I, I, yes. uh, I was really into that. And those earrings. Um, I missed the earrings. I didn't see the earrings. Were they she big? had like some, yeah, she had some gold middle fingers dangling down with a a tooth attached to the end of the fingertips and like a black orb of some sort attached to the tooth under that. So they were very fascinating. Oh. Okay. Well, go B. Right. <laughs> go B. Yeah, so... um I was enjoying last night um, going through the different memes and videos about Cardi B um, <laughs> and the ways in which she looked like an old woman trying to dance <laughs> and shake her ass um, to up. Um, and oh. it was nice, too, to see that the people were really trying to support Cardi B. I, I've never actually seen social media you know, actually, when someone's making the joke, really try to justify the performance. So everybody was like, you know, to her defense, her outfit was 18 pounds. It was very heavy. All of these things. So who who didn't think about that in costume? Or Corey? I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know. What's his name? Sean, um, Sean Beckhead. He wasn't thinking about that uh, in terms of what his dancer, what his artist would need to wear. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm pretty sure Missy Elliott would have been like, I'm too big to be trying to carry all of this extra weight. Okay? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you'll be happy to know too uh, a song you mentioned in the last episode, Lockdown by Anderson Pack. He yeah. actually won for Best Melodic Rap Performance. Do they be making up categories best melodic rap performance? <laughs> what is a what is a melodic rap performance? I guess one that's sung singing rap. Oh, so I imagine Drake has won every melodic rap performance <laughs> prior to, to prior to Anderson <laughs> Pack. I do not keep up with Drake. I couldn't tell you, but oh, probably. Okay. Well, we have to shout out Michael Kilgore for his nomination. He was up against Chloe and Halle and Let Us See for that best traditional R and B performance. So shout oh, out yeah, to he him. He was doing a, a lot of campaigning. Um, mm-hmm for that uh, Grammy nomination. Well, good for him. A- another song nobody is familiar with. And probably I am. Artists... Let Me Go is on repeat, Michael. I listen. Okay. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. I have not heard it. Uh, I'm sure it's something to behold. Um <laughs> I love this song. I truly have it on repeat a lot. So that's good. 
Yes, y'all, as you have probably seen, the series led by Cynthia Arrivo on National Geographic called Genius, Aretha Franklin, is being boycotted by Aretha Franklin's granddaughter. Um, Sister Girl held a protest about two weekends ago in Detroit. Uh, she looked like she was the only one in attendance, and she was holding up a sign in the middle of the street. Her niece? Oh, it was her niece. I'm sorry. You're right. Mm-hmm. It was her niece, and she was uh, protesting in Detroit in the street, y'all, with a poster held up saying, asking for us to boycott this uh, series that actually is premiering this weekend, uh, March 20th. So, um, you know, I think I'm going to give it a watch just to say I've seen it. I mean, you know, it's, it's definitely something that, you know, might be worth discussing, you know, on this yes. podcast. Um, it is just a crying shame that somebody would cast Cynthia Erivo in this role. It is probably one of the most asinine things I've ever witnessed in television history. Oh, is that a, is that like too big to say? In television history, but I think so. I think Ooh. so. Yeah, I think so. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, I'll say that ever since I saw Jeffrey Wright uh, plays Martin Luther King in the film Boycott, the HBO film in 2001, and, you know, he looks nothing like Martin Luther King, but he was able to transcend Martin Luther King. And so he is a person that made me believe that, you know, the person doesn't have to look like you know, the figure to embody the role. But we have seen Cynthia Revo attempt to play um, an American black girl from the South in the color purple. We have seen her <laughs> attempt to play a, run- a runaway slave who frees the people in Harriet. We understand that she is unable to render this type of performance. So why would you have her try to be this iconic figure of rhythm and blues which is an American art form, and you get this British girl, this arrogant British girl with a fade to come (laughs) and play the iconic Aretha Franklin. Like, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And so, yes, this is one of the most asinine things that I have seen in television history, I might (laughs) say. You know... (laughs) It's so interesting, like the ways these these projects that she's done after the color purple, the campaigning around it. She really has had to have conversations about her being British and playing these roles, and you know, being able to take them on. And I remember with Harriet, the conversation surrounding that came from the comments that were made on Twitter when she talked about Black Americans being ghetto. Um, and <laughs> that's still very much in the conversation. Um, and so. In terms of her playing Aretha, it's so interesting because that wasn't really mentioned. Um, but they did, I think they did mention at one point that some of the family had given them approval. But as we've seen from the niece boycotting, that doesn't seem to actually be the case. So 
I'm not sure who approved all of this and why. I will say I know her voice is great. We all think can agree on that. And that is a main factor for her portraying these figures who did have vocal skill and ability. But when it comes to these accents and performing as an American Southern person, for sure, it's just, it doesn't work. Her voice is great, but also not in the style of rhythm and blues which is rooted in gospel music, which is rooted in an American Black experience. So she can have a great voice, but her voice is not in the style of Aretha Franklin. Mm. And I just, you know, trying to hear her sing Ain't No Way, which I'm sure she does in the show that's one of Aretha's most iconic songs, I just couldn't imagine trying to see Aretha in hearing her. Like, it's just not going to work. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to be the bearer of bad news, everybody. But it's just not going to work. You know, and then on the flip side of it, I heard that that set was super hood. I heard that there were, like, money issues, folk weren't getting paid on time. You know, all of these things. So I think that Aretha's niece is right to be boycotting the show. Um, The only way I will watch it is if we were to discuss it on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, um, other than that, I have no need or desire to see her play such a wonderful individual. I definitely think we should take a look at it. I believe it's a nine part series that kicks off this weekend. So <laughs> the only way I'm going to do that is if we're putting it in conversation with the film. Yeah. In August. And then I will then I will watch it. Mm hmm. And I think that's definitely going to be an easy conversation to have. <laughs> Direct comparison. Right. Right. Oprah had a, was it two part or three part interview? Was it just two? Well, yeah, she started talking with Megan about her experience living uh, in the Royal Palace, in Buckingham Palace, y'all. And, you know, I'm sure we've all heard the story by now, but I think the main thing that everybody's been talking about is their comments on whether or not the baby would be dark or how dark the baby's skin would be coming out. And, you know, of course, Megan experiencing depression, uh, being in that environment and um, considering committing suicide and not receiving any help that she asked for. Yeah, uh, Harry not doing much about that either because he was too, quote-unquote, embarrassed to uh, tell his family that she was suffering in that way. So this is all very interesting. I have no comments about that. I'm not one that's ever been, like, interested in the royal family. You know, I was not running to watch the family, you know, watch the wedding, rather. That's a whole other country. And I, you know, I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know that's a, <laughs> that's a whole other country. I mean, you know, I mean, I do have aspirations to live abroad, so I guess I should be trying to figure out what is going on in the governments of other countries. But other countries, but isn't it to be expected? Like, why is this a shock? Why do we expect? Um, you know, anti-blackness is a global phenomenon it is not just in the united states you know i do think that being black in america is a particular thing and 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 is probably um is an experience unlike that in other spaces 
mm-hmm. but anti-blackness is global, you know, um, and it plays out in various ways. So it shouldn't be surprising. My thing too is she literally has entered the belly of the beast in terms of Britain being the number one Kickstarter to colonizing the world. So, I mean, between that and Spain, but yeah, I, I don't know what she thought would be the case um, by getting involved with this family. Like their their whole their whole empire is based upon enslaving and colonizing people of color around the world. So that is the that is the legacy there, and so I don't know what surprise came. There's that, and then there's also just like you know, what are the expectations when one dates interracially? I imagine that with my partner, I'm going to experience some moments where I'm going to have to do some teaching, where they'll probably say some things that I might find offensive. So I, mm-hmm. I would certainly expect that from their family. So I guess. For me, I'm just like, well, what, what, what were your expectations going into the situation? And then my other, then my question is, because I just keep reading different things, so I just am very unclear, is how does Megan identify? Does she identify as a Black woman? You know, I have never heard her say that out loud, but mm-hmm. her mother and her grandmother who raised her are Black women, uh, of course, and her father was a white man, so... It's an interesting. It's an interesting thing. Um, she grew up in Los Angeles in predominantly white schools and environments, and I can't say. I, I believe she identifies wholly as a mixed woman, but in terms of you know how she performs her race, I don't. What does that mean? She identifies wholly as a mixed woman. She takes in both white and black is how she identifies. Okay, I, I mean that's not clear. To, I just wanted to understand. Yeah, that. I mean I've never heard her say specifically that she identifies as a black woman, and she didn't say those words in the interview either. So and Oprah never asked her that. I imagine. Yeah. No. Which is probably strategic. <laughs> Because, I mean, that's important. Yeah. You know, that's a very important thing to know in this particular conversation, you know? Because the thing is, is that me being verbally assaulted racially and wholeheartedly identifying as a Black man is different than, you know, me being assaulted verbally having a verbal racial assault and my identification is unknown or my identification is I am mixed. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because one of my friends, Raven, she actually has a YouTube channel and talks about uh her experience as a mixed woman she has this actually same situation as megan having a black mother and white father and so she was talking about how so often the conversation revolves around you know the the term of passing as white or being read as white by some people on initial viewing um and how you know that reifies 
the uh, plantation um, structure, but it's important for us to, you know, acknowledge blackness of all shades uh, of all, you know, textures and mm-hmm. all identities, but for the person themselves not to, you know, claim that outright or out loud, it makes it hard to, you know, see them as such. Yeah. It makes me question how I'm supposed to sympathize, how I'm supposed to feel, you know, Mm. Um, how am I, as a, you know, just as a, as an audience member, you know, or a constituent, how am I supposed to feel, you know, when I am unclear how you identify, you know? Mm. And then, and then, and then, on top of that, then you have this. You have your husband, who happens to be white, who is afraid to advocate for you. That's a problem. Right. That is a problem. <laughs> that is a problem. And, and for him too to say that, had she not even come into his life, he he wouldn't have even seen issue with how the family functioned or how the structure he was existing in you know, perpetuated violence and hate toward people of color and how he even did that in his own personal life. And it's just And I like, was about to say, oh my God. I was about to say, which oh means God. that he didn't, he didn't take issue with it until you said something. Exactly. And that is so often the issue with dating interracially. When anti-blackness comes to the conversation and you, we have to be the ones pointing out or, or you take the initiative to teach that partner and like that's not the dynamic that needs to be built into a relationship well why y'all keep doing that well cause some of them perform as if they've taught themselves fully before you come along and I mean of course you know love is love and whatnot, but it is difficult and you will have difficult conversations in interracial relationships always Good luck to y'all. So you were saying something <laughs> about about Tyler Perry, about Tyler Perry Studios. Yeah, well, not his studios, but uh, Harry and Meghan actually stayed in his house after they had to leave Canada and uh, got cut off by Harry's family. They got financially cut off, and so Tyler Perry allowed them to stay in his home for some time as they looked for a new house out in California. And uh, Oprah was like, and you know, yeah, I was right down the street from y'all. And you would invite me over and we would uh, harvest these chicken eggs and talk and all this. And I'm just like, what is really going on behind these closed doors with these elites? Like, why is Tyler taking them in after all this? And people on Twitter, you know, were pointing out that his movie, um, oh, what was it? The one about the white family coming to stay with Medea. I think it's witness protection. Medea's okay. witness protection. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was this white family coming to stay with Medea. You know, this came out some years ago, but people on Twitter are joking that it kind of replicates the situation with him, you know, inviting uh, Megan and Harry in as if they were refugees. But um, why are they harvesting chicken eggs? That's what Megan is into. She's, a, she's very much like an animal... Uh, lover. That's one of her main things that she advocates for is animal rights and protection and veganism and all of that good stuff. And so what does she do with the chicken eggs? Does she, what does she do? What? I mean, I think she eats them. 
Well, is she vegan? You just said she, veganism. Oh well, I don't. I don't know what all she does, but I don't think she eats the chicken. I don't know. She gave the eggs to Oprah. Well, it makes you want to stomp, don't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. It makes you want to stomp. So, Kirk Franklin has been on social media acting a damn fool, airing his di- dirty laundry about <laughs> his relationship with his son. I mean, I would say his son put all of the information out first. He recorded their conversation and then put it on social media. But yes, Kirk has been responding all over social media and television, including the Tamron Hall show. Um, was he on the Tamron Hall show? He was. And I know we know how you feel about Tamron Hall. Oh yeah, you know I don't yeah, I don't see it for her. I don't see it for her at all. What did he say on that show? Did you happen to catch the episode? I, I didn't watch it. I saw it on my timeline. He and his wife actually made an appearance on there. And I imagine it this... was the same thing that he said on his Instagram video, you know, apologizing to the masses for him having gotten to that point and it being inappropriate of him to uh, speak in that way, you know, explaining that he had a fraught relationship with his son. I'm still just trying to get out the fact that people are trying to say that Kirk Franklin has not had any work done on his face. And <laughs> I <laughs> I just, I'm just like, y'all, when are we going to live in our truth and understand <laughs> that this man has definitely had something done around his eyes and cheeks? And those lips too, probably. Uh, so he's had lots of work done. <laughs> The son, the son's recent allegations. Do we want to speak on that or do we want to leave Ooh. that alone? I mean, you know, there have been updates uh, as of, I believe this past Friday, there was more of a recording uh, and a friend of his son, Carry On, is Kirk Franklin's son's name. Um, and so his friend released a recording in which he allegedly is um, accusing Kirk Franklin of molesting him. And the, the, the recording includes like the, this audio of uh, the Revolution song by Kirk Franklin playing in the background. And then we hear a voice say, thank you for playing the music of my molester. And the person who posted it is saying that that was Carry On's voice. Um, so this is another layer added to this story that is very, very disappointing. Um, you know, we pray that that's not the case, but, you know, should it be, that adds a whole nother dynamic to this situation that will need a lot of uh, therapy and guidance to maneuver moving forward, because that's something that I can imagine um, Carry On would have a difficult time, you know, getting past in developing I will say that, you know, in my research, I've not seen the molestation allegations listed on legitimate sites. I have only seen them from like, mm-hmm. you know, gossip sites that I'm not even really familiar with. You know? 
what is confusing to me is why Kirk Franklin would entertain any of this. You know, it makes no sense to me why he would even take interviews to address it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand he's heard saying some crazy things and he is a huge figure in the black church. I understand that, you know, but at the same time, you know, it isn't our business. And, 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 and anytime someone's family is in crisis, I know if it were me, I would say, you know, my, my family is going through something right now, you know, and all, we ask you all to do is to keep us lifted in prayer or to send positive energy. I wouldn't feel a need to explain anything regardless of what was said. Mm. You know, my, my, my son shared some things, um, out of anger, Mm. you know, and he felt the need to share that and we're going to work through it, you know, and that's all y'all need to know. But the fact that he is engaging publicly with what's happened to me is gesturing toward some things that we need to be paying attention to mm, mm. and probably will give us the answers to many of the questions that we have. All I can say, you know, yeah, the truth will come to light. And I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just spiritually on a spiritual level, like last year really opened the floodgates on that. Like so much. Mm-hmm so much has come to light so much has been revealed and it will continue to be and I think that is the move toward a better and more open society for us as people and and of course within our own community within the black community too this move toward talking about the traumas that people have faced uh, dealing with our own mental health uh, taking care of ourselves in that way um I think it can only it's only for the better as much as it hurts in some of those moments but I truly believe it's for the better well let's look toward brighter days as we open up this discussion on coming to America woo what a movie. <laughs> I couldn't be on a high Before we get into our initial thoughts, I will say that this reboot phenomenon <laughs> really needs to come to an end. And I hope it ends with this reboot of Wonder Years that's supposed to come to, you know, network television. But I, it just really needs to stop. There's just certain things... That you just don't reboot. And I was thinking about, even like with the parent trap, you know, I love the 1960s uh, parent trap, you know, with Haley Mills. And then they tried to make the reboot with Lindsay Lohan in the like, that early. And that's a, that's a reboot. Okay. There's an original version of that that happened years prior. That is beautiful and amazing. I used to watch it all the time as a kid. You know, I think this is like the initiation of like the double screen because I think this actually was one actor. They weren't twins Mm. in real life. It was actually one actor. Um, And I used to love that movie. And then they want to come back with this Lindsay Lohan version. And I just was like, get her. Don't nobody want to see that. You know? 
And I just think that I don't understand why they're wanting to take these classics, particularly when we are in this age of mediocrity. Mm -hmm. You know, I am going to make that a thing. Yes. In this age of mediocrity, that you cannot, you you don't have the skill set to redo these amazing movies. Now, I will say that I think that this has been one of the better reboots that I have seen. Coming to America. Coming to America. Huh. It is one of the better ones that I have seen. Perhaps, you know, I am close to the film. Maybe I'm too close to coming to America. Mm. You know, it was a film that I used to watch all the time when I was a kid. And when I say all the time, like, you know, there were just movies that I would just watch over and over and over and over again every weekend. You know, I'm mm. watching the same movies over and over again. It was one of those movies. So, you know. <laughs> Me with the color purple. Maybe... And that was one of mine too. <laughs> Color Purple, What's Love Got to Do With It, you know, Women of Brewster Place. Yes. Those are movies that I, I know like the back of my head, Poetic Justice. I know those movies like the back of my hand, <laughs> you know. Uh, I did think that this was one of the uh, one of the, the better reboots. And I think that it was, you know, had a lot of corny parts. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, you got middle-aged folk trying to live in a millennium world, and it's just like, you know, y'all's, your mindsets are not integrating quite well. Yeah. It's just not working, you know. Uh, but I did think it was one of the better uh, reboots, and I, you know, I also thought that um, from a diasporic perspective, you know, I thought that it's, you know integration of American black Americanness, you know and blackness outside of America I thought that it, it, its intention um, meant well and I was able to appreciate mm. that too mm. where should I start this Take your time. this movie it felt very cheap to me one um, and it felt quite thrown together and there was a kind of hmm misplacing of energy or, or it felt uh, very uneven in a lot of places and I think for me the main thing that that, that, that was led by was the introduction of this son um, Eddie Murphy's character, of course, Akeem, uh, meeting his son, um, and it's and then we move into you know them splitting the lead role of the film, and that for me became very distracting because I couldn't figure out whether or not I should be caring about you know keeping up with uh, with Akeem and where his life is now more or being introduced to his son and learning all about him. And it was like they were kind of fighting for the spotlight there, um, and also the very the various cameos that we saw. That was the, that was the most corny part for me, because um, every time we saw someone like the way they were introduced, it was like, oh my god, this is a big thing, it's a big moment, and it was just kind of underwhelming each time. It's like, here's Salt and Pepper, and here's so and so about to sing to you again, and it was just a letdown. I was like, okay, but I will say too, I have seen Coming to America quite a few times as well. I won't say I know it like the back of my hand, but it definitely doesn't have the same 
energy or spirit, this reboot doesn't have that same energy to it as the first movie to me. And it definitely wasn't as funny to me. I don't think I laughed like rarely at all. I think Leslie Jones made me laugh a lot, but throughout the film, I can probably count on my one hand how many times I actually laughed. So that was my first thoughts of it. It follows the same mode of, of, of going from Africa to America, right? Mm-hmm. It's following that same thing that the original film does. Um, I think also we have to think about to the time, you know, the original film was, was made in 1988 or released in 1988. Um, and so I think some of the jokes and some of the things that made the movie funny during that time are not necessarily going to be funny today, you know? Um, and I think maybe that's where the writers probably found themselves in trouble. I think it's important to mention, too, that the writers are two um, middle-aged white men by the names of Barry Blaustein and David Sheffield, who have, you know, they wrote but their they first weren't movie. the only writer. King Barris is, is listed, who we know wrote, um, created Blackish. Mm-hmm created that awful show that was on Netflix. Black AF. Yeah, mm-hmm. black as fuck. Right. Um, and that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. um, as to why there was trouble with the writing there. Um, particularly with them trying to mention words like fleek and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't... I, I mean... Fleek wasn't fleek when folk used to say fleek. So I just, you know, <laughs> you know, like I don't even understand why they would try to include that. See, I appreciated the um, appearances of folk, particularly those who were in the original film. Like I was, it was so cool to see the rapping duo from the club yes. in the original film be back in the film, you know, rapping together again. Mm-hmm. You know, that was very cool. It was cool to see, although Vanessa Vivelle Calloway was in the movie for two seconds, it was <laughs> cool to see her. She was the one who played the original jumping fiance, you know, mm-hmm. the jumping bride who Akeem was originally supposed to marry. It was cool to see her. I was happy to see James Earl Jones, yeah. you know, come back. Cause I, you know, we just know he gonna kick the bucket any day now. You know what I'm saying? So, I'm sorry to say it, but it's life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We we were surprised Cicely Tyson was going. We thought she was going to live to be Jane, Jane Pittman's age. Okay? okay, Jane Pittman lived to be what 110. <laughs> we thought Cicely Tyson was going to live to be 110, but she kicked the bucket earlier this year. So James is, you know, he's well on his way. So it was good to see him laying up in that bed because we knew that's all he could do was lay in the bed <laughs> and do the same. Okay, God bless him. <laughs> God bless him. You know, he is like one of our great blackers. Yes. And, um, you know, we're going to be sad to see him go. Uh, but it was good to see him. So I was able to appreciate, you know, in terms of salt and pepper, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a concert, you know, like, at a, <laughs> I mean, 
At least they didn't have no lines for me. That's what I was. <laughs> I was able to appreciate. At least they're not trying to like have them act. Uh-huh. You know, I was appreciating. Now, Dikembe Mutombo. I don't know why he was there. I guess just because he's from Africa. You know, I'm sure people didn't even really know who he was. He's a basketball player. You know, I didn't understand. Yeah, I didn't understand that. Um, that particular appearance. You know. I didn't understand why all the comedians, you know, Lunell, all of them were there. Tracy Morgan. Yeah, I didn't know why they were there either. Especially Lunell, like, she didn't really give much of anything in terms of comedy. Leslie Jones and Lunell have these, these years of beef, mm. and that it took a lot. It took a lot for them to do the scenes together huh. uh, because of this beef, and that the producers, like, had to go talk to Lunell and be like, can hey, you go squash this beef with her so the job so we can get these scenes done? Um, because apparently they really don't get along. Wow. Um, yeah. Huh, I wonder why. This is, I think, Lunell speaking. It was throwback feeling she had way back when I was on tour with Kat and she was doing some spot dates. She felt a certain type of way, big misunderstanding. In retrospect, the actress said the issue wasn't as big as a deal as it appeared to be. She added that uh, her colleague had a hard time letting go of the dispute. Leslie was in her feelings about some things she perceived were, were being said or being done to her years ago. She is the one who held the grudge. I stand by that. It's not like we want to go to bed with each other, but we certainly should be able to work with each other without all this catty bullshit. So I think that we have gotten to that point. Well, Lunell was on um, Ayanla's show dealing with her issues. So yeah. I wonder... It's funny too because <laughs> Luna adds on some shade to that, talking about, and as much as it pains me to say, she's going to be a huge star after this movie comes out, speaking about coming to America, because this is probably uh-huh. the best work she's ever done in her life, Saturday Night Live included. Oh, you know. <laughs> That's some cattiness oh, for real. That's some good shade for real. <laughs> I love it. Because I would agree. Leslie did do some really good work in this film. I thought she was the star. Yeah. You know who bothered me the most in this film? Who? Was Sherry Headley. Who plays the queen. Who plays Akeem's wife. Uh Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of it is just the way she was written. But she just... I, w- I would have been okay if they cast somebody else like if they if they couldn't find her yeah I was really I don't want to say uncomfortable but like it felt weird the scene when she was drunk and like kicked him out of the bedroom and I was just like this don't feel natural for her it don't feel like she know the director didn't know what to tell her what to do it was just there yeah I also wondered, I was just like, well, what is her relationship with the United States? You know? Because um, she was a woman from Queens, and I get that they brought McDowell's to Zamunda, but I was just like, has she not been back home? Does she, you know, does she not know Queens anymore? You know, what is New York like for her? That was very unclear for me. Mm. Um and I wanted to know, you know, just because they, they talk so much about Akeem's journey, you know, and how he has been able to transform over the years. Yeah. And I was wondering, well, what 
since this is the love of his life, he was so much in love with her. What does that look like for her?、Mm. You know, because it seems like she is almost disconnected with that part of her life. My, I guess, understanding of that would be, I guess, McDowell's was brought over there because her father was there too, and so、mm-hmm. I guess the whole family moved over to Zamunda, and nobody really traveled back and forth between America anymore since they all live there now. But it's a business.、So、I'm、yeah. just like, but that, it's a business. And so, did the American locations close? Who knows? You know, and and, and her character was very much a part of the business.、Mm-hmm. You know,、um, so that's why I was like, I'm confused about why her relationship. And so, I tried to chop it up that this is a fantasy. Yeah, you know, suspension <laughs> of disbelief. Yeah, you know, and and just try to get into the nostalgia of it all.、Yeah. You know,、um, you know. There's a reference, I believe, to the movie Trading Places, where when、uh, Lavelle goes to try to get the job,、um, and then they he's talking to the white guy、um, and like. Questioning him about his past,、mm-hmm. his you know the ways in which he has been coddled and set up in life, you know, and they look up at the wall. The two men, apparently, those two men、um, are from the film Trading Places,、um, but I'm not sure people would know that. I、uh, certainly didn't.、Uh, yeah. They kept the camera on that frame for about 20 seconds, and I was just looking like, "What am I supposed to get from this?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that was that was you know Eddie Murphy's decade,、mm-hmm. the 1980s. He was in so many films, you know, Trading Places, 48 Hours, Beverly Hills Cop One, Two, and Three,、mm-hmm. Golden Child. You know, he was in so many movies、um, during that time.、Um, so I guess they wanted to pay homage. Speaking of characters in this film, Rotimi,、um, his character, the son of Wesley Snipes, I was just confused because he didn't really have any lines, and I didn't know if he was supposed to be queer or what was going on. Like he just kept putting these dreads behind his ears, and I was just confused. Do you have any explanation or understanding? No, because I think I was still trying to understand Wesley Snipes' character.、Mm-hmm. And his presence there? No, I, I have no. I, I mean, for me, I guess it. I guess it goes with you and these、um, random appearances of folk. I think you know it. It reminded me of、um, Patrick Ian Polk's attempt to reboot、um, Noah's Ark. I don't know if you got to see that during the pandemic.、Mm-hmm. Yep. That.、Um, yeah, and just how. It was just like every other scene. There was just this a, a new star, you know,、mm-hmm. and that kind of just became. So I guess I was just for in my head. I was just like, I guess they want to just see how many stars they can get in one film.、Um, I'm not that familiar with you know Rotimi. I I didn't watch Power.、Mm-hmm. Um, that was not my show, even though I know Black America loved that show. Yeah, so I have no, I don't know. Yeah, you know, I have no thoughts about him. You know, he came into the one scene, and then I feel like you don't see him again until the end, right? Yeah, at the wedding scene. Um, right. 
Uh, so I don't know. And then, you know, there's Rick Ross there. I guess they had to throw him in there since they filmed, in his the, house. Fil- they filmed the movie at his, in his mansion. Yep. And let me tell you, he worked hard on his one little line that he had. You could tell he worked real hard on it. What'd he say? What'd he say? <laughs> like, the people just said that you can go. I was like, you better say your line, Rick Ross. Oh. You better say it. <laughs> Let's give it up for Rick. Let's go. <laughs> Around the, around the fucking applause for Rick Ross. He worked very hard. But no, another another character, um, and this goes more, I guess, into this accent work done on this film. Uh, Kiki Lane's character. Uh, you all may have seen Kiki in If Beale Street Can Talk. She played the lead there. Um, she also did a movie recently on Netflix with uh, Charlize Theron something about her being a bodyguard. And, um, you know, I see Kiki very much as an ingenue type. I feel like she can easily play a Disney princess of some sort. But in this, she was to be like, you know, doing all this physical combat and stick fighting. I think she executed that well. Like that was choreographed well. Um, Mm -hmm. But when it came to the accent and her, you know, maintaining this Zamundan accent, it was very off throughout the film. Like it trailed off in many scenes. Like I very much just heard her American accent and it was just off putting and it took me out of the film. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, it's actually not that, that interesting because, you know, I was going to say in comedy, you may be able to get away with that a bit more. Um, But for it to actually work, you would need to be committed throughout the entire thing. I guess that's what I think that the, uh, maybe, I don't know if appeal is the right word, but we'll go with it. That's the appeal of coming to America is I think that the accents are bad Mm -hmm. and that in the, in the first one and this one. And so I don't think that there is an expectation for these accents to be consistent or even authentic, because I would imagine most of them probably are not good accents mm-hmm. if we like really like think about them. So for me, I guess I just was like, that's the aesthetic of the film. That's been the aesthetic, I guess, now of what we would call the franchise is that the accents are poor, you know, because the accents weren't great in the first one either, you know, um, and they may have been inconsistent as well. So it didn't bother me. Um, I mean, because if you talk about her accent, then why are you not talking about Tiana Taylor's? We can talk about Tiana Taylor's as well. Tiana looked beautiful. I mean, her... She sounded a mess. Correct. You know, (laughs) and because she looked so beautiful, you know, you didn't care what she sounded like. You know, like, I don't think that this film was, like, intending to be Hotel Rwanda. Mm. You know, I think that it's just, that's not the intent. And if people came in hoping for that, then you came in with the wrong mindset. You know, um... I think it's a movie that makes fun of, I think it's a movie that makes fun of Africanness in a way that I think that's kind of what we should talk about that I think worked better in 1980 something Mm -hmm. as opposed to 2021, you know, um, which is where I think also where some of the comedy problems come into play Mm -hmm. because you, there was, there was ignorance that was acceptable in 1980s. That's not acceptable today. And my question to you then, too, is, is it not hypocritical for 
you to critique, you know, British actors coming over here and doing American accents, um, mm -hmm. but it being okay for American actors to, you know, kind of make fun of or put on these half affected African accents. So once again, this film is following in line with an earlier film. And once again, there was a so there was an ignorance that was acceptable in in there was an ignorance that was acceptable in the 1980s. This is not a serious film. And like I said, I think part of the aesthetic of this film, of this particular film and the storytelling in this film is these are these fake accents mm -hmm. now a film that's intending intending to tell a real story or to not say a real story this is a real story but a film that is that is in, intending to be authentic because also zamunda is not a real place right. you know this is not a real place so there's difference in fantasy and then there's there's a difference in fantasy and drama you know, and so if we're doing fantasy, then sure, go have at it, do what you want. But if we're doing drama and we're telling a real story, then I expect, you know, because I think there's a reason why they don't ask Americans to come and do, don't, don't do Black Brit stories. Mm -hmm. There's a reason for that, you know, because they're not going to have, they're not going to stand for that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that we should have the same stand. So I don't think it's hypocritical. I think it's apples and oranges, to be quite honest. And Black Panther, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, you know, everybody's accent was all over the place, particularly Forrest Whitaker and Angela Bassett. But once again, we're talking about a, um, a place that is fictional. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a fantasy and, and a comic. You know what I'm saying? Um... These are not real places. So that accent can be whatever. And Wakanda, Wakanda is not real. You know, so it is not the same thing. No. Hmm. I think it's a great question, though. Yeah, because it makes me think just like, even to what the perspective might be from someone who is from, let's say, Western Africa. And uh -huh. I know there had to be some pushback from the first film and hearing those accents mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and then for it to be reified in this in this iteration it's just hmm it's a it's a intercommunity conversation to be had for sure because i could imagine there still being some offense taken by these accents and the way they are uh portrayed in this film because even though it is a fictional place we we have the awareness that it is set in the continent of Africa and that it is right. still in that context of the accents that have been produced from that area. So, right. But we don't know where in the continent of Africa. Yeah. And we know that Afri that the continent of Africa, that there are countries in Africa and that, that have different dialect sounds and tongues. Yeah. So we can't even make that a monolith. You know what I'm saying? We, we can't do that. We don't know if it's in West Africa. We don't know if it's in South Africa. Because those are two different regions, you know, and two different cultures. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And within those regions are multiple cultures. You know what I'm saying? So you just can't. No, you can't now. Now we can talk about Americans who played Mandela, you know, and the ways in which those accents have been quite problematic. Will Smith, you know, Morgan Freeman, they 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 struggle, mm -hmm. and they shouldn't have been playing those roles. I will say that, and I love Morgan Freeman, 
you know, but they shouldn't have been playing those roles. So, you know, no, I don't, I think, no, I, I, I definitely, you know, appreciate, you know, you asking that question and asking, am I challenging those actors? And, and I think that I do in, in, in the right space and time. It's, I think it's a very westernized view and Americanized view um, of Africa still and the stereotype of it. So, definitely, you know. definitely. I mean, I agree with that. I agree with that, and I think that that is what kind of makes the comedy um, non-existent. Because, like I said, I think that the jokes that worked in the 1980s mm-hmm. of the aesthetic of that film will not work today. Mm-hmm. And so, you have to do something different. And I agree with you that you know um, it gives us a very superficial and unrealistic view of what. Africa might be, but Africa is a continent too. So what does that mean? What Africa might be, you know, might be like, that's what I'm saying. They can take any part of any country, any culture from Africa and explore that, but they don't in this film. So that is the issue. They are monolithizing this whole story. Now, was this an opportunity for that movie to address those kinds of politics? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Did they miss it? Absolutely. You know, um, but I don't think that that was their intent. Yeah. You know, I think their intent was to continue with the fantasy and with the um, kind of magical realism that the original film sets forth without thinking about the implications that it might render to audiences. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, you know, another joke that I felt just didn't land at all was, I forget which character they wrote uh, to say this, but it was the comments about, you know, them existing in uh, the 21st century and, you know, people being able to surgically remove and change their genitals. Um, And that was, you know, of course, a commentary on uh, transgenderism, but Mm -hmm. it was just like, Mm -hmm. y'all... (laughs) <laughs> that was so cheap and corny and whack. And I was like, why did this pass through? Why did this pass through the final script edits? Like, you know, I, I thought about that, but you know, I, I, I try to think about, I try to think <clears throat> in the mindset of those people who don't get to have conversations, you know, who are not progressive mm-hmm as we are taught to be or we are or as, as we are allowed to be mm. um because there are people still in our you know circles who are not progressive yeah, yeah. who are who are still quite ignorant and so for me i just felt like that well that is a person that you know in their 50s 60s that's something that they would say mm. that's an appropriate joke for them because mm. they don't have conversations about trans yes I don't know, Kenzie. You kind of sounded like uh, when Billy Porter talked about <laughs> the Pose cast being nominated and him winning the award uh, for his performance in the show and him being like, we're in the door. Like, mm, that's not enough. I, you know, I stand by him with that because they shouldn't have been nominated because they're not a good actor. They're not talented. So for them to be in the, and I think that people misunderstood. I think they misunderstood what he was saying in that, in that he wasn't saying that they're in the door because they're trans. He was saying they're in the door because of this opportunity and they shouldn't be because they're not talented. That's what I took from what Billy Porter was saying. 
And I think the way he said it, it left it up to be interpreted in the way that you're talking about. But I think what he really wanted to say is that I got nominated because I'm talented and I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> I think the, the main thing, though, about that is that he included he used the words we are in the door in that comment, including himself in it. And so that leaves it open to interpret that he's talking about LGBTQ folk at large being in the door. Um, and that's where the issue came from, because from my perspective, what he brought to Pray Tell and Pose didn't render an award worthy performance. But um, <laughs> but yeah, for him to say that comment um, after, you know, his other castmates were expressed that they were upset, it was just off putting those are new actors and i don't know why you would have the expectation to be nominated for an award mj's not first what, what was mj in before she did stage oh. productions of rent and she's a theater actress this is what i'm saying yeah. she's new she's new to television don't nobody know who mj is she's new samuel jackson wasn't there and eddie said had he have been there he would have been robbing the mcdowell's yet again <laughs> so didn't nobody grow it was, it that's, what, that's, what, that's what we're to learn I did appreciate you know seeing um, the recurring you know characters that Eddie and Arsenio brought uh, particularly Arsenio that pastor character I love it favorite mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he does his thing with that I was disappointed by the choreography mm. um, it definitely won Paula Abdul and, you know, I I, you know, well, it was Fatima, and you know, Fatima knows better. So I just, I, I just felt like she was unable to showcase what she can do, mm. and that saddened me. Because there was an opportunity. You had Tiana Taylor there who could mm -hmm. dance her butt off. You know, Fatima also choreographed Dreamgirls. Oh, she's been in the scene, you know, creating um, choreography for quite some time. And apparently, I think she um, just had her directing debut with Lil Baby's um, Black Lives Matters Grammy performance. Um, I think she directed that. But Fatima Robinson um, has been chore choreographing for quite some time. Uh, she choreographed the um, Remember the Time by Michael Jackson, Rock the Boat, uh, Aaliyah, a lot of family affair um, for Mary J. Blige. Um, she's choreographed My Humps for hey. the Black Eyed Peas. She's won several, you know, MTV um movie awards she her film credits include save the last dance uh she even did the Wiz live you know so Come she's on. done a whole lot of choreography you better go ahead miss fatima yeah but i just wish that we would have gotten to see a whole lot more of what she does yeah um, and i'm wondering if it was cut out well, I just want to call out Hollywood for these um, silly attempts at rebooting um, these iconic films. Leave them alone. <laughs> Leave them alone. Because you don't have the talent to to hold fast to the roots and foundations of these films. You know, nor do you have the intellect to do it. And nor do you have the connection to blackness to sustain such lineage mm -hmm. so leave it alone 
and tell me stories. <laughs> you pulling anybody in? What's her name? Um, I didn't love Kiki Lane mm-hmm. and if Bill Street could talk. Yeah. Um, but I liked her in this film. I liked her and I see her likability. Uh, I see the light that comes on when she smiles and she's very pretty. Um, and so I, I will pay attention to her now. I will pay attention to her now, is what I will say. Good. I would like to call out uh, Kenya Barris and uh, the entire writing team of this film. It was very lackluster. Uh, I feel like there was not enough due diligence done to flesh out a narrative that would have uh, dealt with human emotion on a real level. And uh, it felt very corny. (laughs) So, and Kenya, we know this is your, that's your shtick. You, you write corny material about black folk. So, and it's, and it's working for you. And I guess there's a lane for everyone. So there's that. Uh, to pull in, I hmm, I really actually enjoyed Leslie Jones' performance in this film. I think she was the one who made me laugh uh, most consistently. She knew exactly what she needed to do with that character. Um, and I imagine that her work on SNL did you know prepare her for doing stuff like that or something like this film so um yeah leslie great job great work um excited to see her in more comedic films and that's it i was about to say i would love to see leslie do something very serious Mm. Uh, you know i understand that you know comedians generally uh are very good at playing those two extremes so I don't know, something about, I've been seeing her more and more lately, and I actually just would really love to see her do something serious, because I bet it would be, I bet it would be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I just I just have a, a stinking suspicion that it would be really, really good. Um, so I hope we get to see her do something serious in the future. Um, but we want to thank you all for listening. You all can follow this podcast at Performing Black on Twitter, IG, and Facebook. Where can they find you, AT? They can find me at artsy.allen. And you can find me at the Shadesmith. We want you all to tell your mama, mm. your daddy, your hey. mother, your sister, your co-worker, your little dog. That's <laughs> uh, playing in the mud. Tell everybody. Listen check in. Check us out. And listen in, subscribe, and follow at Performing Black. Performing black, performing black.